الجزيرة بودكاست You might not expect to see a world leader doing what's known as the crocodile yoga pose on the lawns of the United Nations, along with hundreds of people. But that's what Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi did on Wednesday to mark the first major event of his four-day state visit to the United States. Yoga is flexible. You can practice it alone or in a group, learn from a teacher or be self-taught. It was quite the event, packed with Modi supporters, dignitaries, and even some celebrities. You just spoke to Richard Gere, that very famous Hollywood actor. Richard Gere being there sends across a very important message. And New York City Mayor Eric Adams, he's also going to join this amazing yoga celebration. Today, the Modi mania moves to Washington, D.C., where President Joe Biden is rolling out the red carpet. For a ceremonial welcome at the White House, a state dinner by the Bidens, and a rare second address to the joint sitting of the U.S. Congress. The India-U.S. relationship is often framed as one between two liberal democracies. And events like yesterday's International Day of Yoga at the U.N. are a big part of Modi's soft power and popularity. But under his Hindu nationalist government, India has seen minority rights, civil society, and freedom of expression all massively eroded. And none of that is front and center on the visit agenda. So what really drives the U.S.-India relationship? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. To get into the ins and outs of this visit, we called up a fellow podcaster. My name is Milan Vaishnav. He hosts The Grand Tamasha, a podcast on Indian politics. He's also a senior fellow and director of the South Asia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington, D.C. So, Milan, let's dive right in. Narendra Modi, he's a controversial figure. And with all of the fanfare around his U.S. trip, some might actually forget that he was once denied a visa to come to the United States back in 2005 and effectively banned from coming to the country for close to a decade before he became prime minister. That was because of his alleged role in religious riots, which killed more than a thousand people, most of them Muslim. He did not intervene in a massacre against Muslims in 2002 when he headed the Indian state of Gujarat. Hindu mobs raged through the state, burning their neighbors alive and raping women, whilst the police and authorities were accused of standing back and at times encouraging it. Modi was cleared of complicity in the riots by India's Supreme Court, but the stain on his reputation has lingered. Fast forward 18 years from that visa ban, He's in the U.S. on an official state visit, complete with a full state dinner where he'll be the guest of honor. So how significant is this trip? So I think this trip is very significant. Since about the year 2000, the U.S. and India have been embarked on a growing and deepening strategic partnership in all kinds of spheres. But I think what we're seeing today is perhaps a qualitative jump. 
These two leaders, U.S. President Joe Biden and Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, have realized that the future of their domestic and foreign policy ambitions are inextricably linked. Mr. Prime Minister, there's so much that our countries can and will do together, and I'm committed to uh, making U.S.-India partnership among the closest we have on Earth. That the U.S. needs India, and the India needs the United States for economic reasons, for defense and technological reasons, as well as for diplomatic outreach. But I also think that there are structural factors at play pushing these two countries together, and the most important one is really the looming threat that a rising and expansionist China is playing in the Indo-Pacific. So it sounds like it is a giant game of political chess. Because on the one hand, it might look like pageantry, but behind it, there are strategic, crucial aims that each has in mind for each other. I think that's absolutely right. There is a lot of pageantry involved in this visit. President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden will welcome the Indian Prime Minister with a 21-gun salute. There's going to be a state dinner, and this is only the third leader that Joe Biden is hosting for a state dinner after the French president and the South Korean president. We are going to see the Indian Prime Minister address a joint session of Congress, not for the first time, but for the second time. You know, there are only a handful of leaders who have ever done that. Uh, and that list includes Nelson Mandela, <laughs> Winston Churchill, uh, Yitzhak Rabin, and Benjamin Netanyahu, and Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, and now soon Narendra Modi. He will be the guest of honor at a White House state dinner. He will be feted at a Kennedy Center gala of more than 1,500 members of the diaspora, celebrities, politicians, policymakers. Wow. So the pageantry is significant, but there's quite a lot of substance. And I think that is what has really gotten both capitals so worked up. So how is it playing out in India? Because there has been a lot of fanfare, at least when it comes to Indian media. Excitement is really off the charts for Prime Minister Modi's visit to the United States. Well, I think it's a big political victory for the Prime Minister. You know, I think those of us who study Indian politics have traditionally divided up issues into elite issues and mass issues, right? And what Narendra Modi has done is to move foreign policy from an elite to a mass issue, right? It is now an issue that the average person on the street talks about, not in a concrete sense of, okay, what is this defense deal that the US and India have struck, right? But in a general sense of feeling that for the first time in their lifetimes, they believe due to Prime Minister Modi's work, India is firmly on the map, right? He has been able to market himself essentially as being the person who's been able to affect that transformation. So this visit is not just to achieve foreign policy goals of the prime minister and of his government, but also sends a signal back home. Of course, this trip is strategically key here in the U.S. as well. And you can see that from the defense deals that are expected to be announced that India is important to the U.S. government. The United States, we are told, is open 
to sharing critical technology with India. Technology like GE 414 jet engines. There could also be a deal on 30 MQ-9 Predator drones or the Sea Guardian drones amongst the most lethal weapon platforms in the world. Why are they making these deals? What do we need? What does your average person need to know about these deals? I think what the average person needs to know is that the United States has been building a framework of deterrence vis-a-vis China. And as they've built that framework, they have been looking for partners in the Indo-Pacific with which they can um, enlist as uh, kind of co-owners of this strategy. So what it means is that going forward, the U.S., is going to consider India to be one of its closest partners. And I use partners on purpose because India is not a treaty ally of the United States. Mm -hmm. As our NATO allies are, as countries like Australia and Japan and the United Kingdom are, it has famously brandished what they call its non-alignment status to not want to get sucked into being a formal member of one block or another, right? I mean, mm -hmm. this was formed the backbone of India's foreign policy during the Cold War. We, the non-aligned, have chosen peace, which surely is the right and inevitable choice. But they have still adhered to that principle, even after the Cold War chapter has been closed. But there's no doubt that when you kind of look out at the world, India has decided to pivot towards a closer relationship with the West, right? So whether it's questions of defense and military partnerships, intelligence sharing, collaboration on the challenges of the future, India is going to have a seat at that table. And it's largely because, you know, the U.S. has worked very hard to bring India to that place. Biden is supposed to have told Modi privately last month, quote, you are causing me a real problem. Next month, we have a dinner for you in Washington. Everyone in the whole country wants to come. I have run out of tickets. What does that say that this is the hot ticket event? <laughs> yeah, so I think there's a couple different things going on, and it's worth unpacking them. The emphasis that the U.S. has put on the future of the Indo-Pacific has gotten such significant airtime within our own bureaucracies. I'm talking not just about the White House, but the State Department or the Commerce Department or the Defense Department, our intelligence community. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a recognition of that. I think it's also a signaling. Let's not forget that the Indian American population may only be slightly more than 1% of the U.S. population, but it is growing at a rapid clip. Between the years 2000 and 2018, this is a community that has grown by 150%. Oh. Two-thirds of people of Indian origin who reside in the U.S. today were either born after or migrated to the U.S. after the year 2000, right? Mm. So this is a very, very new diaspora, but it is also an increasingly influential one. If you look at median household income, or you look at median educational attainment, Indian Americans are literally off the charts in terms of how well they've performed. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that they are important 
voters. They are represent important special interests. They are becoming increasingly influential campaign contributors. Mm. They have reliably voted for the Democratic Party. More than two-thirds of them. In fact, you could make the case that after African Americans, Indian Americans are amongst the most loyal constituents of the Democratic Party. Wow. So it is also a signal for Biden to say, I see you and I recognize you. But he's also saying that because the Republican Party sees Indian Americans as part of their natural constituency. This is a group that has done very well economically. They care a lot about low taxes. They care a lot about business regulation. Many of them have socially conservative values. So the Republican Party says, wait a second, you guys actually belong with us. So for Biden, this might be as much of countering China as it is playing to a base of potential voters come 2024. I mean, absolutely. I think that there's no question that he is looking to signal to the Indian American community, which has invested deeply into bringing these two countries together, as they like to say, the world's oldest and the world's largest democracies. But are democratic values really the glue that binds India and the United States together? That's after the break. Ever wonder what history's most famous and infamous would say if you asked them for their side of the story? Most of the world knows me today as Winnie Mandela. In this season, we hear from some of history's most notable women, including Tasmanian Aboriginal Truganini. I survived an apocalypse. How many people can say that? An unconventional and extraordinary artist. Every time pain brought me down, I painted it. You've heard of them. Now it's time you hear from them. Me? I am Frida Kahlo. I'm Charles Dance, your narrator for Hindsight, a dramatized podcast from Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So, Millen, earlier this week, Prime Minister Modi said in a statement that he believes his trip to the U.S. will reinforce ties, quote, based on shared values of democracy, diversity, and freedom, end quote. And as much as both countries often frame the relationship that way, there are many people who would challenge that claim. Modi and Trump are twin sides of the same coin. Their policies are exclusionary. They're nationalist. This is make America great again. This is make India great again. India seems to have normalized this everyday hate against the Muslim minority when nothing actually surprises us anymore. Both India and the U.S. have experienced democratic backsliding here in the U.S., specifically or especially under the presidency of Donald Trump. With India, we've talked about Modi's controversial past, but even since he's been in power, rights groups note a shrinking space for minorities, civil liberties, journalism, freedom of speech, dissent, all under his Hindu nationalist government. A mob stormed into a Muslim family's home, dragged the father and son out by their hair, and started beating them with sticks and bricks on rumors they had eaten beef. The British Foreign Office report called Modi, quote, directly responsible for the climate of impunity enabling the violence. A global watchdog monitoring freedom of expression has named India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi as one of 37 predators of press freedom. 
So keeping all of that in mind, how does that play into the relationship with the U.S.? Do none of those things matter? It's a really good and very complicated and, and, and thorny question, right? I think there's no doubt that this is a relationship that is fundamentally built on interests. And I think values have been useful as a way of selling the relationship, of trying to explain why it is that we need a partnership with India. But I think it's also been useful because it has helped to assuage concerns, particularly in places like the U.S. Congress, for instance, that, look, we are sharing sensitive technology, sensitive intelligence. We're going above and beyond for this country because at the end of the day, we have the trust and confidence that they hold similar values as we do, right? And as you rightly point out, the values dimension has been called into question on both sides. But I think particularly at the present moment that we're talking on the Indian side, I think what the Biden administration has done is to take a calculated risk that the convergence of interests is so great that we are willing to hold our tongue. I don't think that they are ignorant of what's happening within India's borders. I don't think they are poorly informed. I think internally, if you were to ask them in a candid moment, they would say that they are concerned. But I think there is a belief that Given the current geopolitical order, there is a lot to be gained for the United States, both here at home as well as abroad, by deepening relationship with India. Now, I just want to point out that there's a strategy that has risks associated with it mm. in, in two ways. One is, well, you've sold this as a relationship built on shared values. So if you see the crumbling of those shared values, uh, you know, what if, you know, Cynics, detractors, skeptics start to say, well, maybe we should pull back, right? Maybe we should retrench. Some people are already making that case, although they tend to be a vocal minority right now in the United States. But the second is, you know, if we are engaged in such deep and collaborative partnerships with India on everything from AI to intelligence to, to the most sensitive defense technology we have, what if it's used for purposes that run contrary to our expectations at this present moment, right? It's hard to know what might happen five years or 10 years down, right? But I think in judging the risks and the benefits, the Biden administration has come down clearly on one side. We know, though, it's not just concerns about rights where the U.S. seems to have made an exception for India. One of the other areas is foreign policy, Russia for example. It's India's biggest trading partner for arms. And last year, the U.S. even exempted India from automatic sanctions that it imposes on countries for buying a particular missile defense system from Russia. Five S-400 missile systems for $5 billion. But India is still being given a sanctions waiver. So when you speak of risks, is this another one of those areas where there's more risk than good, or is it the other way around? It's important for us to remember our history, which is that for a large part of the past 75 years since India has been an independent nation, it has had a very robust relationship with the then Soviet Union and now Russia. Fast forward to today and you see the Russian invasion of Ukraine and India decide not to unequivocally condemn Putin's invasion. 
And that did raise a lot of alarm bells in Washington because that was a moment where they said, look, you actually have to pick a side. And India, while condemning the war, did not condemn Russia mm. and continues to import significant amounts of, of energy as well as, as defense material. I think what the U.S. calculation is that India understands the need to really de-risk and diversify away from Russia. Mm. This is not a 75-year relationship between Russia and India that you can just, you know, uh, overturn overnight. This is going to be something that's going to play out on its own glide path. Mm. So we don't really see in public any longer any open condemnation of India's position because I think the policymaking world in Washington has been socialized to <laughs> India's point of view on where it stands vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Mm. So finally, Milan, later this year, India is hosting the G20 summit and there have been G20 events all year long. How does that, along with everything we've already talked about with this U.S. trip, play into where India stands today on the global stage under Prime Minister Narendra Modi? This is being sold in India as a crowning achievement, mm -hmm. right? Almost as if India has been elected to head the G20. In <laughs> fact, it's just a rotation. It you know, everyone will host it at some point. But they've really made this into a, a milestone achievement that has kind of domestic political kind of resonance. Prime Minister Narendra Modi has had this idea that, you know, India has long been considered a balancing power. But in fact, its rightful place on the global stage is to be a leading power, not just a pawn that can be used in someone's game to say, OK, well, you're upset about this other rising power, so let's use India as a kind of defense mechanism. No, in fact, we have our own views and we want to leave our own imprint on the global order and the shape of global geopolitics. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ashish Malhotra and Chloe K. Lee, with Miranda Lynn, Sonia Bagat, David Enders, Khalid Sultan, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bidal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back tomorrow 